Creative. Expertise. Technology. Patents and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm, Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. And you may learn more about our firm at our website, lalaw.com. On today's show, we will review top cases and developments in uh, patents and trademarks in 2011 and look forward to what these holdings mean and what else is on deck for uh, 2012. Uh, We will be producing this show in two parts. First, covering patent issues and then trademark issues. Welcome to part two of our program on IP Council, uh, addressing the intellectual property, particular patent and trademark year in review, 2011, and, uh, and a look forward into what's uh, uh, going, going on in 2012. Uh, for this portion, we're going to be addressing uh, trademark happenings with John Welch. John, welcome to IP Council. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Let's talk about some of the leading issues in the trademark world. Uh, I know that there's been a lot published on this, uh, we'll call it the red shoe case. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's it's an interesting case for a number of reasons, one of which is it involves two well-known designers, Christian Louboutin and Yves Saint Laurent, who are battling over the color red. Louboutin happens to own a federal trademark registration for for the color red uh, as applied to shoe soles. Um, Yves Saint Laurent recently introduced into the marketplace an entirely red shoe, including red on the sole, which prompted Louboutin to bring a lawsuit for trademark infringement down in the Southern District of New York. Uh, so uh, uh, it's got interesting issues and interesting parties, um, and it's, got, it's been getting a lot of attention. The uh, uh, Christian Louboutin moved for a preliminary injunction last August, and the Southern District of New York judge denied that motion, uh, basically saying that if Louboutin was able to claim the color red for shoes, it would seriously impact other designers who want to use the so-called complete color palette in their fashion designs. But the but the registration, as you explained it, was was on the color red just for the soles. Right. But uh, arguably, if uh, a fashion designer should be able to produce clothing items in whatever color he or she wants to, um, and uh, by uh, restricting fashion designers from using red on soles, it was some people feel that's a, a major restriction for someone's artistic uh, abilities, I suppose. Well, it's interesting to see designers going at it over colors because, as you well know, the uh, the registrability and enforcement of color trademarks for years had been in more uh, kind of mundane areas, uh, not not as a uh, kind of um, designers anyway. Well, uh, that's right, and that's what makes the issue interesting. I, I mean, the key case is a Supreme Court case called Qualitex 
which involved the color green for press pads used on clothing presses and nobody really cared whether somebody got an exclusive right to the color green for press pads as long as it was serving as a source indicator but when you start dealing with uh with fashion uh wherein colors are a key component then you're getting into much more murky territory and you're getting into the issue of functionality which is the key issue in this case uh, basically, the Qualtex case said, sure, you can have a trademark in color provided that it serves only as a source indicator, but if it has some utilitarian function, for instance, the color white for kitchen knives or the color black for outboard motors that are attached to boats, then you're not entitled to exclusive rights to that color. And that's what's going on here. On the one hand, if the red were serving only as a source indicator, that would be fine, but uh, fashion designers, including Chris, uh, including uh, Yves Saint Laurent, think that red is functional for them because it's part of uh, their uh, it's part of their design uh, scheme, and therefore it's more than just a trademark. It's more than just a source identifier. So that's what the battle's over. So far, Yves Saint Laurent managed to defeat uh, Louboutin's attempt to get a preliminary injunction in the Southern District. And the case is now up on appeal, and it was uh, argued before the Second Circuit just last week. And as I say, the key question, uh, I think there's two key issues. One is, on the one hand, the issue of functionality and designers being able to use the full color palette. The other side of the coin is that fashion designers have very little intellectual property protection. And uh, from Louboutin's point of view and fashion, some fashion designers' point of view, they would like to have some kind of intellectual property rights in their creations. Now, I think part of the problem is Louboutin's uh, trademark registration is not limited to any particular color red, although what he uses is actually a, a lacquered china red, a particular shade of red. Uh, but as I say, there's no such limitation on his trademark registration um, hmm. And therefore, there's a, a claim that it's you know it's just too broad to give them the give them the color red completely. Is is there a is there a means by which that registration could be limited to the specific color red you're mentioning? Uh, I don't see that there's a, a way the court can order that. I think that you know in a settlement you might get um, Lou Bouton to agree to amend the registration to narrow it, but hmm. I don't think there's a mechanism by which the court can order that i think it's more of uh it's more of um all or nothing in terms of whether the registration is valid okay I mean, frankly i'm having a hard time finding the, the functionality of the color red for souls but uh but i i'm also not in the fashion world so i i'm not uh right well as i say Yves Saint Laurent is actually selling a shoe that's all red including the sole so that in and of itself i suppose is some kind of fashion statement and you're saying if they can't have a red sole, then they can't have a red shoe with a red sole. So, yeah, uh, who knows? I I personally don't have any red shoes with red soles. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that uh, certification, John. Uh, um, the the next topic I think is is also very interesting. I've been reading a little bit about trademark bullying. Well, yeah, a little background with that. It's uh, it's generated quite a lot of uh, talk, for better or for worse. It all started last year in March of 2010 when Patrick Leahy, the senator from Vermont, apparently got a, a letter from a constituent who thought it was being bullied. It was a little company 
called Rock Art Brewery, a small microbrewery in Vermont. And uh, Senator Leahy took it upon himself to introduce, to attach onto, I think, the PTO um, uh, funding bill, a requirement that Congress, sorry, requirement that the Commerce Department conduct a study of uh, whether large corporations had been misusing the trademark laws by exaggerating their rights in order to uh, harass small businesses. That became known as the Trademark Bullying Report, partly because that's what the USPTO called it initially, uh, much to its, uh, I think, regret. Mm -hmm. It later backtracked from using the term bully, but that nonetheless is what what is stuck with the report. And the trademark, sorry, I keep saying the trademark, the Commerce Department asked for comments and got comments from, uh, you know, six or seven dozen entities and individuals. The large intellectual property organizations like the International Trademark Association, uh, the ABA, basically uh, commented that they really didn't see any need for change in the system, that the present law was good enough to handle abuse of the process, and if a a plaintiff uh, overstepped its bounds, then the courts could deal with that. Of course, the problem with that is it ignores the fact that uh, oftentimes this bullying comes about without litigation actually occurring. I mean, it can happen just through letters harassing a small company. Mm -hmm. It also can happen in the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board uh, where there are no monetary sanctions. So a company can oppose a trademark application um, with almost with very little consequence if they're overstepping their bounds. There, are, as I say, there are no monetary sanctions, and the most that the board can do is dismiss the opposition. So, I think the large organizations kind of put blinders on, and uh, the Commerce Department did the same. They came out with their report and basically said that they thought there were sufficient mechanisms already in place to deter uh, abusive litigation tactics. Um, many small businesses were not happy with the report and wondered what the whole point was after all, because the result was quite dissatisfying. The Commerce Department suggested that there be more educational efforts to educate people about trademarks, rights, and baloney of that sort. But again, nothing was suggested regarding changing the law. Um, a very recent interesting development is a uh, what what I will call a trademark mill out in California posted a list of what it claimed were the top trademark bullies in the country, and the list was based solely on the number of oppositions filed by the company. So uh. the top ten bullies were supposedly the top ten opposition filers. Of course, there's not necessarily a direct correlation between the two because. Uh, one person's bullying is another company's uh, uh, appropriate defensive litigation tactics. Right. Uh, and recently, very recently, a couple of days ago, the Red Bull Company commented that it was not unhappy to be on that list because it served as a warning to uh, other people that Red Bull takes its rights seriously and will take appropriate steps to defend it. So. The, the talk continues. Um, there's no question that um, there are companies who exaggerate their rights and take advantage of the system as it is. Um, and I think it's true that 
the sanctions uh, available at the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board are, are not adequate to deal with that kind of a tactic. But that's the system that we have, and I don't think you can necessarily blame these companies for taking advantage of the system that exists because they do have um, an obligation to protect and police their marks. Right, right. Okay. Um, the next topic, would you and I had talked about uh, on, a, on, a, on a prior podcast, uh, was a fraud at the Patent and Trademark Office since, since the Bose decision uh, a couple of years back. Yes, yes. Fraud has, uh, still remains fairly dormant since the uh, Bose case in August of 2009. The Trademark Trial and Appeal Board has not, found a, has not sustained a claim of fraud in a single case in the last, uh, I guess it's now 28 months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think uh, what the Court of Appeals did in both is part and parcel to what they did in the Therosense case on the patent side. They've tightened up the standard for inequitable conduct in Therosense, and they've tightened up the standard for fraud on the trademark side. A couple of recent rulings by the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board um, which, by the way, has a new chief judge who's only been there for a year or so, and I think he has set the tone in this uh, regard. So what, what, is, what has happened is uh, in the last uh, year, year and a half, two cases have come down that show really how hard it is going to be to prove fraud after the Bose decision. Both stress the fact that you have to show an intent to deceive the Patent and Trademark Office. And in recent cases, one precedential, the board... Um, declined to find fraud because the applicant had obtained advice of counsel. In another case, a not presidential case, but nonetheless an important case, the board excused the submission of a blatantly phony specimen of use on the ground that the person who submitted it was a layperson who didn't understand the law. <laughs> so the board has basically made it uh, very difficult to prove fraud if there's an attorney involved who gave advice or if the person on the other side doesn't have an attorney. So there seems to be a very narrow window to which, like, yeah. to which to prove fraud. I think the, perhaps the only one who commits fraud now is a trademark attorney. I, I was going to say, if you put those two cases together, so if it's the attorney who puts forth a, a fraudulent specimen... Then I think he's stuck. <laughs> but it would take something of that nature. Yes, it's a, it'll be a cold day in the... Uh, in hell when we see another fraud claim sustained, I think. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, uh, Craig also mentioned the Global Tech case, which is interesting. That's the case that involves willful blindness. Oh, the SEB, uh, yeah. There's some thought that uh, on the trademark side, since it's so difficult to prove actual bad intent and find the smoking gun and getting get the applicant or the registrant to actually admit that it intended to deceive the patent office, the question remains what what less than proof of intent would satisfy uh, the board vis-a-vis a fraud claim. Now, the board and the CFC have ducked the question of whether reckless disregard for the truth is enough for fraud. Um, One of the TTAB judges recently published an article where she suggested that maybe this willful blindness uh, theory would at least be enough. Mm -hmm. If not reckless disregard, then willful blindness should be enough for fraud. So that's an issue that uh, that we may see come up. That issue, that standard was adopted by a Florida district court uh, last uh, winter 
in a case where it found fraud. So maybe that's the next development in the fraud area. For okay. what it's worth, it's still going to be very difficult to prove. Okay, okay. I know uh, for the next topic, I know courts and uh, the TTAB have struggled for some time in applying or finding dilution, dilution by blurring in particular. Can you shed some light on that topic? Well, you know, the, the dilution theory has been around for, I don't know, seven decades now, and <laughs> courts have never been comfortable with it. Uh, the, the Congress wasn't comfortable with it, and it was not until 1995 that the anti-dilution provisions were added to the federal trademark statute. Um, to prove dilution requires proving a very high degree of fame. Um, in many cases, particularly at the TTAB in the past, uh, where there's only been a handful of dilution claims upheld, and uh, in those many of those in the, in the very recent past. So for like the first 10 years at the TTAB, there were, were, I think, two claims of trademark dilution upheld. But anyway, um, in most TTAB cases, and in the courts too, if, if you have a mark that's very well-known and indeed famous, it's entitled to a broad scope of protection even under likelihood of confusion theory, so you don't really need dilution. In other words, a mark for, let's say, um, uh, a famous mark for watches might be protected under likelihood of confusion theory for ancillary goods like T-shirts and whatever. Uh, so just under the likelihood of confusion theory, you can get broad protection for a famous mark, so you don't really quite need dilution. So that's one reason why we don't see a lot of dilution claims. They never really, the, the board has in the past often declined to reach the dilution claim when they can find likelihood of confusion. I see. And, uh, and, and uh, recently, however, at the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, they have upheld two dilution claims, um, but denied one. And the denial is as interesting as the upholding of the two. One was for Nike's uh, Just Do It mark. And in that case, the board relaxed its requirement regarding the similarity between the marks necessary for dilution. The board had been holding in the past that the two marks would have to be identical or substantially similar. But the board, taking taking its note from a Ninth Circuit decision, decided, no, that's not really the standard in the statute. They don't have to be that close. They just have to be similar enough, given all the other factors uh, involved. But the board did, on the other hand, uh, focus more on the, the issue, focus more on the portion of the statute that requires proof that the allegedly diluting mark will actually harm the distinctive, the distinctiveness of the famous mark. Now, it's hard to even understand what the statute is talking about there, let alone how to prove it. And as an example of that, the most recent trademark trial and appeal board dilution case involved a very famous Rolex mark for watches. Rolex tried to, uh, Rolex opposed an application to register the mark Rolex, R-O-L-L-X, for x-ray tables. Hmm. Now the marks, there was no problem with the marks being close enough, but the question was, and the board decided that there was no likelihood of dilution and dismissed that claim because Rolex did not show that the allegedly diluting mark would actually harm the distinctiveness of the Rolex mark. Now, how Rolex was supposed to prove that is, is an interesting question because the Rolex for x-ray tables mark wasn't even in use. 
<laughs> so you'd have to conduct some hypothetical survey uh, to get some kind of proof that if uh, if you think about how this would work, it's pretty kind of mind-boggling, but a server participant would have to be shown this Rolex x-ray table mark and somehow react to that and and indicate that that would harm the distinctiveness of the Rolex mark for watches. I mean, yeah. the point. I think there's a point to be made that if Rolex is such a famous mark, how could any other mark make a dent in it? Mm-hmm. How, how could the fact that somebody is selling Rolex x-ray tables really make a dent in the fame of the Rolex mark for watches? So the the whole dilution theory, I think, is difficult to fathom and apply. I, I, I shouldn't say difficult to fathom. You can fathom what the concept is. It's very hard to apply to a, to a given case. Yeah. Partly because... When you have a mark that's famous enough to be to qualify for dilution, it's hard to imagine that one single use on some oddball product is really going to make a dent in that fame. Yeah, I wonder why not uh, likelihood of confusion as to it, it's been endorsed by Rolex in that instance, or, or yeah. why not that theory is a much um, I don't know. It seemed to me to be a lot stronger. Well, it's curious because Rolex didn't pursue a Section 2D claim. It just went right to dilution. I suppose it thought its mark was so strong and the two marks were so similar that if this, you know, if dilution is going to work anywhere, it should work in this case. Right. Well, it didn't work. So I think that's put a real question mark over over the dilution remedy hmm. at, the, at the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. This is an issue that uh, Professor McCarthy has been stressing, even when the TTAB found dilution in the, in the just do it case, the Nike case. Yeah. McCarthy commented that, wait a second, you didn't address this issue. Where's the proof that the use of the dilutive mark, which was just Jesuit, like J-E-S-U-I-T, where's the proof that use of that mark is going to harm the distinctiveness of the just do it mark? So Professor McCarthy has been zeroing in on this, and now the TTAB is zeroing in on that question. And it's a difficult question to answer, particularly if you are a plaintiff's attorney and trying to prove a dilation claim. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Let's um, let's take a short break here, and when we return, more with John Welch. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today, uh, we have covered uh, Intellectual Property Year in Review 2011. And for this portion of our program, we're joined with uh, by John Welch. And we are talking about top trademark and related issues. Uh, John, when we left off, we, we finished talking about dilution. Uh, one, one large topic remains to touch on uh, today, and it's, and it's a topic we actually did a podcast show on uh, some months ago, and it's this uh, ICANN's uh, plan to roll out uh, generic top-level domains um, uh, beyond the, the the very familiar .com and .net and .edu and so on, um, 
basically, I'm, I'm, I've been reading quite a bit about how the uh, trademark owners are up in arms about what's, what's going to happen. Well, it is kind of controversial because uh, it's a scheme that the trademark owners didn't really ask for. It, uh, it's a scheme that uh, maybe the scheme is the wrong word or sounds pejorative, but it's a system that was created by ICANN. Um, not necessarily, and not all trademark owners wanted to see this system set up because, in some sense, now that one can, for example, register .google as a TLD, as a generic top-level domain, not all companies want to do that. And yet, if they don't do it, somebody else might do it, and then they have uh, a ramp, serious problems in trying to to stop that. Or, or for instance, think of like Delta Airlines wanting to get dot delta when there are lots of other deltas mm-hmm. and is there going to be a, like a land rush to see who gets dot delta and a fight between the various delta companies so this is not necessarily something that trademark owners wanted on the other hand other trademark owners think it would be valuable to have let's say dot google or dot your brand name so that when somebody went to the dot brand name website they'd know it was legitimate and I you see. could use that domain name to send customers back to your .com website. So there, there is some benefit to trademark owners to, to own their brand name as a TLD, at least in theory. Okay. Um, but other trademark owners are not interested. So there's already been a divide among trademark owners as to who, are, who is going to participate and who is not. And it's not inexpensive to purchase and set up your own TLD. I think that I think I read at some point the cost was going to be $150,000 or something like that just to to acquire your your own GTLD. Yeah, I think it's $185,000. Yeah. yeah. And uh yeah, there's all sorts of uh issues with that as well, but I'm thinking more along the lines of when somebody gets a dot I don't know, take a generic mm-hmm. word like a dot pizza or a dot right, dot, dot, toys, sh- dot right. shampoo or something. And then the the uh, trademark owners will feel compelled then if they're in that particular space, if they're, mm-hmm. a, they're a pizza chain operator or a, a maker of um, uh, healthcare products or whatever it is, that they'll feel compelled then. And, and it just goes on and on and right. on. So there's this cost that's being uh, – yes. uh, Some people think uh, it's <laughs> – it's much more expensive than it's worth, and it's a, a, a way for ICANN to expand its uh, power and uh, influence. Now, had you heard that there was uh, – I thought there was some congressional uh, hearings to be had on this? Or I think those, those took place uh, probably last month. Okay. Yeah. I didn't follow them closely, so I can't really comment on those. And this is ICANN's um, sole effort, um, and, and it's been – Affirmatively, it's been approved basically, and it's I think moving it's forward. Begun. Yeah, I think the, the period began a few days ago. Yeah, as far as applying for it, and I think the window for applying for a GTLD closes in April sometime, and then it'll be nine months to a year before these new GL, GTLDs are actually uh, in effect. Well, if the recent experience with the dot triple uh, X, which was another uh, 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 top level domain that was recently rolled out by ICANN to to basically have a um, a um, a tag for for those that wish to to go to those sites. Um, that there was, I understand, a, a kind of a land rush uh, to 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 get 
by by rightful trademark owners right. uh, to 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 obtain those domains with the .triple X just so not to be associated with um, what what comes with that. Right. I think they, particularly colleges, for instance, wanted to make sure that their college name didn't get taken by somebody else with a triple X on the end of it, so they would. You know, they would they would buy the domain name just to put it aside and keep it for safekeeping, so no one else could have it. But that's a similar situation where trademark owners are forced, sort of forced to participate, uh, uh, or otherwise their marks might be damaged. When you know they never really wanted this system in the first place. So I, I think that's a similar a similar situation. It mm-hmm. was a money making the triple X was a money making enterprise for the the particular registrar. But for many trademark owners, it was just added expense. And this has occurred time and again. Every time a new GTLD is created, um, a trademark owner has to think: Do I should I should I get should I use my should I get my trademark in that domain? Well, what would you advise as a longtime trademark uh, counsel? What what would you advise a client that uh, that asks, "Hey, should I partake? Uh, should I?" I think for the triple X, yes. Okay. I think for the getting your own GTLD, that's really a business decision. It's, it's very expensive, but on the other hand, if you're a, a consumer product company that sells a lot of consumer products, and or a bank, and you want to make sure that you know you're, you're combating um, spam and phishing operations, it, it might be worthwhile to have a trustworthy GTLD. Hmm. I've always I've always thought of trademarks as a as a or the trademark law in general as pro consumer at least at its core. Um, I'm not so sh- certain about this this plan. <laughs> It'll add more confusion than than the uh, consumers. Uh, I think you know I, from the consumer point of view, I don't. I think most can. Consumers look to .com. I think most of these other GTLDs are not that important. Clearly, the .com name, the .com GTLD, is the most important. So whether this is, you know, a, a, a lot to do about nothing remains to be seen. But from the trademark owner's point of view, you just sort of have to react. You have to defend your mark rather than take the risk that something might happen. Something bad might happen. Yeah. Well, that's certain that uh, in 2012 and beyond, uh, we'll, be, we'll be following this closely, uh, no doubt. Uh, thanks, John, for joining, uh, joining us on this portion of our edition of uh, this edition of IP Council dealing with the IP year in review. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com, and you can subscribe to this program through iTunes. Very special thanks to my guests for this portion of our of our show, John Welch. And I know if somebody wants more information on trademarks in general, they can reach John Welch at jwelch at lalaw.com. And of course, you can contact me at lalaw.com or email me directly at plando at lalaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, talking law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.